So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gerd Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. So, as the eldest of four children, all of whom were born within a six-year time span, this week's guest jokes that she was her parents' beta shipment, which is typically that first tech product that goes out the door into the marketplace with all its imperfections. But despite whatever imperfections Lisa Stone may have had, the now indisputable fact is this product was clearly solid enough for her to eventually become the co-founder and CEO of BlogHer Inc., one of the world's leading platforms for women to share their voices, stories, and ideas on the web. And true to her beta form, Lisa's journey was really an iterative one. What becomes so ridiculously clear throughout our discussion is the purposefulness with which Lisa moved from one job and career to another. She tested, she learned, she gathered data points, and she moved forward. And underlying all that, driving both her career and her life, was an unquestionable sense of service-fueled optimism about what's possible in the world. So without further ado, and in her own words, I now present you Lisa Stone. Well, firstly, Lisa, thank you for agreeing to share your journey. Uh, Very much appreciated. It's a pleasure. You know, I don't think enough can be said about the strange paths that so many of us take through our careers. So true. So let's, let's, uh, let's dive into yours. My first question, are you today in your career where you thought you would be when you were younger? <laughs> uh, no, uh, to say the least. I am amazed and surprised. I think my parents probably are too uh-huh. uh, by where life has taken me. I was an unbelievably distracted and disorganized teen who did every job and activity I could find. And I was similarly peripatetic when it came to figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, So yeah, uh, surprise and relief. How's that? That's amazing. Can you, um, when you were uh, growing up, did you have any concepts uh, before high school, younger, younger Lisa, any concepts of anything that you wanted to be when you, uh, when you grew up? Well, I knew what I didn't want. Uh, so I'm the oldest of four kids. My parents had four kids in six years. Yep. Okay. Um, and I grew up in Missoula, Montana. My parents are still married 55 years later. And they had these four kids in rapid succession. And if, you know, under, if you understand software parlance, I'm the oldest, which means I'm the beta shipment. Okay. Right. Right? I was the one with the most flaws. Okay? A few bugs in the system. (laughs) Um, And I was, you wouldn't know it now because I'm only 5'7", but, and I'm the smallest kid in the family, but I was very tall very early. 
I was always really verbal, excellent gifts in writing and language. So they made a decision to skip, skip me a couple grades. Yep. I don't recommend it. So I was a nine-year-old fifth grader and a 13-year-old high school freshman. Wow. I turned 17 just before I went to college. So I use that as an excuse to describe what I'm about to say next. Unbelievable academic immaturity. Okay. Yep. I was completely lopsided. I was a terrific writer. I always enjoyed storytelling and writing stories, being involved with language of any kind. But what that meant, given my emotional and social immaturity, right, compared to my peers, was that if you couldn't tell me a story about it, I just didn't care. Yep. All right? Yep. Imagine trying to teach someone like me calculus. Right. Okay. <laughs> And really gifted mathematicians can tell stories with numbers, absolutely, but no one I grew up with could. So I was hopping all over the place. I remember in high school, my first year I did band, my second year I did show choir, my third year I did drill team, and my fourth year I was a cheerleading captain to the horror of my parents. I mean, I, I just couldn't stick to anything. Got it. Was Was storytelling sort of the core interest, would you say? It absolutely was, but, you know, my parents, although they're excellent communicators, you know, my father's a doctor and my mother did one of the two career paths available to her. Those were education and nursing, and she became a teacher, right? Yep. The idea that you might get paid for writing a story, this was a challenging concept. It didn't occur to any of us, right? Yep. So I started working in retail about as soon as I could. Did babysitting around the neighborhood, uh, paid, I'm like at home, um, at <laughs> starting at age 13. And then I did a series of food service and retail jobs growing up in Missoula, Montana, and learned that I loved people. I loved interacting with people. I learned some great customer service skills. And I didn't have to sit still because... You know, here I was, 13 years old, bouncing around in ninth grade, right? right. I mean, I, I had a really, really tough time just being in one place at one time. So that was a lot of fun for me because I learned how I could enjoy interacting with people in an environment where I had an increasing amount of responsibility. Right. You know, with food service and shoe sales and from shoe sales into helping run teen fashion shows. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And when you're taking these initial jobs, what's the driver for you? So I was completely interested in having enough cash to do the things that any teenager wants to do. I wanted to buy clothes that I liked. I wanted to go out with my friends to the movies. I wanted to be able to buy things for friends and family. Um, and, you know, there was a, a, a reasonable uh, but small allowance, and I had big ideas. So the, the autonomy and the control is something that I absolutely loved over that. And I think that, you know, that's why to this day I think that I was so focused on the economic empowerment of other writers and not to jump too far ahead, yep. but it's one of the reasons that I was so passionately committed to our mission at Blogger, where I was co-founder with Elisa Camelot Page and Jory Desjardins and also CEO for 10 years because the, the ability to control my own future, 
was just unbelievably exciting. It was the motivation that actually got me to apply to and attend college. I want to ask that question from one other angle. On a scale of of zero to 10, where zero is a total non-issue and 10 is a big, dark, gloomy shadow, how large of a shadow would you say that financial considerations had over your career path to date? I was incredibly lucky to grow up in a family where not only did we have enough to eat, but we had educated parents who had jobs. And even though I grew up in a small town in Montana where everyone knows the price of bread, we didn't have to count the number of slices in the loaf. Okay. So I am unbelievably privileged in that way. I was able to go to college, leave state to go to college, which was very unusual at the time. Uh, of single-digit percentages of Montanans in the 80s were leaving the state to go to college. You know, this was before cable TV and the Internet. Now, people don't go into journalism because they have financial concerns. (laughs) (laughs) Let me put that another way. I decided to leave my job after college as a research associate at a consulting firm in order to take a free internship fact-checking for two columnists at a free weekly newspaper. That's how badly I wanted to be a journalist. Yep. So I put love of what I was doing ahead of the money. Yep. That said, um, I did make some decisions later about how to pursue my interest in media when I became a single mother um, that were very much tied to the life I wanted to create for my son. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Um what role these ideas of purpose and mission have they played in your life? You know, it's interesting. I got strong feedback from my parents who, again, you know, I was not the person who was expected to do well in college. I was not someone who was expected to be consistent in a career path. As the oldest of four kids, I Trust me, my two sisters and my brother were the ones who blew the teachers away, you know, in our grade in high schools growing up and who went on to to achieve much bigger things academically than, than I could even conceive of at the time. But one of the things my parents always really instilled in me was that the only way I was probably going to be happy doing anything because they knew me, because they worked this way themselves, was that if I did something I absolutely loved. They did not push me in any one direction, though. And thank goodness, because I not only didn't have a purpose in life when I left high school, having just turned 17, or when I left college at 21, I didn't even know what my passions were professionally. It was time for me to try a bunch of stuff. And that is what I recommend people do. Try anything that you're interested in that you can get paid to do. Yeah. And so moving forward, I tried things. I was a political science major and a Spanish minor, and I decided that I was passionate about food policy, and I went to work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's food stamp program in the San Francisco regional office right out of college, and I learned incredibly valuable things about the past and future of food policy in the United States. I also learned how 
impatient I was and that I needed to work at a much faster, more aggressive pace. So I threw that to the winds and I went to work for an economic consulting firm, Putnam Hayes and Bartlett, where I had the privilege of managing a fuel futures database during the um, Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and also working in Spain for six months in the pre-EU Spanish utilities industry. And that's where I learned how much I've loved analyzing and writing about trends, uncovering trends in fuels futures, in population growth, in the assessment of what kind of electricity demand we're going to need to be met and how in the burgeoning, soon-to-be European Union. And that just propelled me straight into journalism. Yep. Because I was trying to figure out how I could get paid to analyze business and political trends and uncover the next big thing. And journalism was something I tried. It took. Yeah. And, and um, what brought journalism into that consideration set? You know, it's funny. I never wrote for my high school or college paper, girl, not yep. once. And I didn't have any journalists in the family at all. Right. In fact, growing up in Montana in the 70s and 80s, before cable television and before the internet, this was before USA Today launched as a national paper. The most recent national paper that we could get was a three-day-old New York Times that was fresh in from the airport that my father would pick up on his way home from work. At the right, hospital. that's amazing. I mean, we were remote. And so I think... I became an avid reader of the newspaper and, and really interested in the outside world. Again, I was just hungry for stories, fascinated by anything that could be told to me in a story form, writing, you know, like a madwoman, you know, in all of my humanities and, and English classes, um, and absolutely bored stiff by anything that, that didn't involve storytelling. Yeah. So, when you flash forward to the privilege of a wealthy college degree that I had, you know, it was very easy for me to get taken seriously as a job prospect out here in Silicon Valley. The brand name of my school was something that I didn't understand the value of until I moved out here. And so when I walked into the San Jose Metro's offices and spoke with um, the editor then, uh, who he said, well, you're overqualified for this job. You know, you've worked internationally managing a fuel futures database, but you can clearly write. So I'm just going to give you a try as an intern because you went to Wellesley College and you've done some interesting things. So expect to work for free for 90 days and then we'll see. Unfortunately, you know, I had, I had the ability to, to do that. Not everybody has the ability to take a, a free internship for 90 days, but it's one of the reasons that I encourage everyone I talk to to do three things. Number one, you absolutely have to get an undergraduate degree. This concept of going straight from high school into the workforce here in Silicon Valley without a degree, I'm sorry to inform the world, not everyone is Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. 
Okay. I desperately needed that maturity. I needed the experience of going to college. I needed to prove to myself what my interests were, even though I didn't have a purpose, as I said. Um, But I think that, number one, you absolutely have to get that undergraduate degree. You deserve it. It will change your life when your life changes. When I became a single mother, I stood on that degree with both feet. Okay. But secondly, I also think you need to take computer courses understand the code, even if you don't become a coder, understanding the code and the protocol and the structure that underpins our entire communications life today, right? No matter what you go into. And third, be great at writing a five-paragraph essay. Yes. Not a 500,000-word essay, five paragraphs. If you can do that, you can do any job in the world, I'm convinced. Yep. Um, One more question on, on mission and purpose. Do you ever think about it from the perspective of what am I meant to be doing here on this planet? Why was I born? Wow. You know, I've never been asked the question, why was I born and what am I meant to be doing on this planet in quite those terms. I love that question. I have to tell you, I have always felt an enormous responsibility to empower other people through anything that I do. So as a journalist, my goal was to help consumers, businesses, voters, constituents tell their stories or have their stories investigated and heard. That's how I ended up writing an investigative series on the FAA that got me recruited to CNN when I was at the Oakland Tribune. But the other thing I would say is that my absolute favorite quote in the world is by Marion Wright Edelman, who started the Children's Defense Fund. And it's this, service is the rent we all pay for living. And I don't think I could possibly do work where I felt like I wasn't proving a lot of other people. And that is how I ended up in journalism. It's also how I ended up ultimately transforming the labor of love that was Blog Her Inc. from a conference into uh, a for-profit mission to help pay independent voices to yep. create. And can you tell us what it is that you do today? Yes. You know, my last act as CEO of Blogger after 11 years was to merge it with Gino's Media. And I'm so happy that the CEO of Gino's Media, Philippe Galton, and I were able to bring our teams together. It was a massive accelerant for both companies. And he is doing a fantastic job leading Sheena's Media, Blogger, and Stylecaster into the next frontier as the number one women's lifestyle company in the digital media space. My job was to integrate, help integrate the two companies, and then to leave because he's running it primarily from New York. And I've spent my past 18 years helping start companies and taking them to, you know, $30 million or more in revenue. That's my food spot. So it turned out that after doing that for 18, 19 years, I have a huge life deficit. So I, having exited uh, the blogger she knows uh, successful merger very happily and in total accord with the leadership there, I'm going to take a year to explore 
and decalcify my brain. I have some art projects. I have some writing projects. I also am very happy to have joined Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence just for the, you know, first part of the year um, because I think so much of the team here, um, Patricia Kosh is a longtime friend of mine and we're working very closely on, on some, some fun ideas. As you, uh, you mentioned that one of your uh, specialties is taking businesses and turning them into uh, high revenue generating companies. Walk me backwards a little bit. Where you left off is you did policy work, then you jumped into journalism. How did you get yeah. from there to uh, an entrepreneur in residence? Well, you know, I'll tell you, my expertise as a journalist was never as a lyrical writer. I've become, I think, a, a strong writer, a good writer, but um, my expertise has always been in analysis and in trend spotting and in finding the next hot big thing. Covering politics, business, and transportation was very exciting because I loved using all my background as a working retail and working with the people and running all over the place and my millions of different activities I did trying not to study while in high school. This made me someone who was really great at getting data and stories out of people who wanted their stories told. So what emerged was a pattern of reporting that ultimately led me to doing a Freedom of Information Act investigation into the FAA in the nine western states after a total radar outage at the Oakland Air Traffic Control Center. I was recruited to CNN and pulled on to Mark Carter's strategic team, which was at the time working to improve the quality of CNN's air to that of CNN International, which was absolutely superb and giving the BBC a run for its money. So I began to develop my chops as an audience developer and a media strategist. That was from 95 to 97. So I had my son in 1996, Time Warner bought Turner News, and my marriage ended. So in 1997, I was a single mother who was no longer flying to Atlanta half the month, and I needed to find a way to support my son and myself here in Silicon Valley. I was also dying to stay part of the news cycle, right? I'd really fallen in love with journalism. So three brilliant guys had started a company called WebTV, the Phil and Bruce. And so I reached out to Stacey Jolna from CNN over at web TV and brokered myself a three day a week job where I would bring in my media strategy and content development experience and would learn how to write HTML working with some of those brilliant engineers, right? Can I stop you right so, there for a second? The mm-hmm. key words for me were brokered myself. Tell yeah. us, tell us about <laughs> brokering yourself. Sure. So my goal at the time was to stay part of the news cycle. I knew what I had to offer. I had complete bona fides as an award-winning journalist who had crawled my way up from a free fact-checker at a free weekly to an investigative national and breaking story into CNN, right? A huge news brand. And so I went in knowing I didn't know anything about HTML, but I also believed that the internet was going to be huge because of what I'd seen with CNN.com's launch, which I was not part of, but was a huge fan of and certainly observed when I was at CNN. 
And so I walked through the door and said to my person with whom I had a connection through CNN, Stacey Jolna, who was running the news and product group, and said, I think I have something that can be helpful. I also know that you're hiring in this space at a much lower amount than I make right now. So let's cut a deal. I'll work three days a week. I have a baby. I have a one-year-old that I'd like to spend four days a week parenting. I'll bring in all my assets, my Rolodex, my knowledge. You'll have to pay me a fraction of what I'm used to making, but you won't blow your budget. And I get to learn a ton from you people. So it's a win-win. That's why I'm doing it. Yep. Right? And Stacy was like, absolutely. This is a win-win. Come on in. And I ended up... uh leading the news and sports team for Web TV, integrating everything from the golf channel, working with a brilliant sports guy named Chuck Rucker, um, and also pulled in MSNBC, got a chance to meet, you know, a series of talents in the space um, who were just launching MSNBC. It was fantastic. So it was a real win-win. But I, in order to broker myself, I needed real experience, a willingness to sacrifice on my income levels in order to have the kind of flexibility I needed in my personal life because I had a one-year-old baby. And so the win-win was I was overqualified, but they weren't getting all of me. Yep. Where does the brokering mentality come from? What would you attribute that to? I think I first learned about the brokering mentality at my family's Lazy Susan dinner table. <laughs> we grew up at a round table. Again, family of six. My parents had four kids in six years. You cannot, if you've ever eaten a Lazy Susan, you can't turn the, the Lazy Susan to get the next part of your meal unless everyone else is done getting their right. part of the meal, right? And it's a great dynamic because it's every decision around a lazy Susan has to be a win-win. If I want macaroni and cheese, I have to let you get the applesauce. So I'm telling you, having three siblings was the single best experience I could possibly have in learning to broker. You want to borrow my jeans? Great. I'd like to borrow your t-shirt. It was a great experience. And, and, you know, I grew up in a, a, a truly amazing, loving environment. Now, Add to that the retail experience I had in high school, and I also worked retail through college, again, for spending money. And one has a situation where one is constantly trying to connect with other people to figure out what their needs are so you can achieve your own needs. And it has to be real. Because if you sell someone the wrong sweater, they're going to come back and bring it back the next day. And so, you know, your sales goal is going to be Kaputsky anyway. So, So don't, you know... Don't do it right. wrong, right? Don't borrow, don't borrow your sister's jeans without asking because she'll never get that t-shirt, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it was, it was just really, um, learning how to work with people. I have to tell you though, my parents from the beginning have been just my most important yeah. mentors. They insisted on integrity in all things. The single biggest sin in my family was to lie. The single biggest sin in my family was to not treat the other people in the family with respect. Not only would one of my sisters be irritated if I borrowed a piece of their clothing without asking, but my parents would be disappointed in me for treating my sister without yep. respect. Yep. What other, um, your parents sound like amazing people. What, what, 
other ways would you say that they have impacted your career path to date? Well, you know, when I left CNN for Web TV in 1997, I began to work with a series of startups. I was at Web TV, then I was at Women.com for four years uh, as editor-in-chief, helping launch 11 Hearst magazine and two Rodale magazine sites while overseeing original content. Then that had required managing a team in New York as well as in Silicon Valley. Then I had a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard. Then I went to Law.com, and then I started Blogger. You can imagine that I wasn't sitting in my home office every single one of those years, right? So my parents have performed what so many extended families perform for us single parents out there, right? They became a key part of my son's life. And then when he was six, and I met my partner, Christopher Carfee, and became stepmother to his then two-year-old and 14-year-old, they became part of their lives as well. So I can tell you, I've got a karma bank filled with babysitting hours for my kids because I owe. Right, big time. (laughs) I absolutely owe. So it sounds like to say that they were always there for you would be an understatement. They, they They were filling in the blanks left and right. It really would be an understatement. And I think that um, in addition, you know, one of the reasons I'm such a strong advocate of getting an undergraduate degree for everyone uh, and one of the reasons I'm I'm such a strong advocate for um, investment in our public education system is that I also had the ability to hire or share uh, nannies and other help when yep. I needed it in order to make sure that I didn't overtax my parents or that I didn't take advantage of family members. Um, whether it was my, you know, now partner for 13 years, Christopher Carfee, or friends who would be willing to, you know, have my son or my kids spend the night when I had to be yeah. on the road. So, um, I think that it's so important for everyone to have as much flexible, appropriate, and qualified support as they can to have a whole life. Because here's the great irony. I would never have been able to tap into what it turns out I'm very good at, which is digital community development and movement building, if I hadn't had children in the first place. Why did I leave CNN in order to go to web TV and then start this unexpected experience as a media strategist. I was so focused on being a serious present mother for my one-year-old, now 19 and a half-year-old, by the way, um, that I was propelled into an entrepreneurial scenario. You know, we, we, ta- we talked about your storytelling, the love of storytelling. We talked about your love of um, taking companies and growing them. We talked about your identifying uh, trends, building, you know, digital communities online. There is a lot there. And I'm, I'm trying in my head as you're talking, I'm like, what is the thread that weaves all those together? You know, I will tell you, there are two slices you can take through my past from the time I was moved up two grades and was a nine-year-old fifth grader to now. And one is, you could take an approach and say, oh my gosh, she's had 
the easiest, most fantastic time. She just naturally navigated her way through um, changing from journalism into entrepreneur um, and then successfully selling a company. I would laugh if I heard anyone say that because I failed classes in high school. I failed a class in college. I couldn't pay attention to anything. I went to work for free after deciding I didn't want to get an MBA. I enjoyed journalism, but then I had a failed marriage and was a single yep. mother. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a very deep depression in my early 30s around that whole kettle of fish and really struggled with whether or not I was going to be able to be the kind of parent that I had. So I, you know, it's interesting. I think that once you've had a series of disappointments or failures or insecurities, if you survive them, then you lose a lot of your fear. Yep. When blogger, the conference idea became something that looked like it could be a very exciting company. And Jory and Lisa and I bootstrapped for two years, and then we decided, well, are we going to be a lifestyle business, a smaller lifestyle business, or are we going to go for it and try to become the massive publishing juggernaut we thought it could become? And we decided on the latter because we believed that we could do it. And we believed that there was no one else out there who would take as good a care of the women in our community as yep. we wanted to. At that time, people said to me, aren't you afraid to raise the capital? Aren't you afraid? It's going to be brutal. It's going to be difficult. And my response was, you know what? I'm divorced. I'm a single mother. I don't care. There is very little anyone can do to hurt me because the things that really matter to me um, – have already been threatened. That's right. And, and, and within that comes a tremendous amount of power. It really has been very empowering because, you know, it's ironic. Um, there's so many conversations about balance, you know, work-life yep. balance, when it's possible to have a life outside of work, whether or not to have children, when to have children, as a man or a woman. And candidly, I would not be the creative or the entrepreneur that I am today if I hadn't had children because the experience of having a child, becoming a single parent, then becoming a, you know, a stepmother in a Brady Bunch as well has really helped me put what I care about front and center. And it's made me much less fearful about trying exciting new things in my career path. Bottom line, if I have to spend time away from these babies every day, it better be for something that I've really yeah. loved. Yes. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, a moment of, uh, of tremendous depression in your 30s. How did you navigate that? So when I was 34, I had an incredible privilege. I had been at women.com for four years, had helped take the company public as editor-in-chief, supporting the gifted founder, Ellen Pack, and Marlene McDaniel, the CEO. Then the company uh, in the 2001 bus was acquired and merged with iVillage, which was the other women's company at the time. I had applied for, and to everyone's surprise, including my own, won a Neiman Fellowship for journalists at Harvard University because of the innovative way we had been able to work with women online in hard news, finance, 
as well as pop culture and entertainment. So I went to Harvard for the year, and it was an unbelievable experience. It also was a time of deep reflection. And going going through um, the process of the change in the startup and going through the process of um, just some of the changes in my personal life made it so important for me to just spend some time talking to people about who I was, who I wanted to be in the world, and what I wanted to accomplish. Um, I think that it's been so valuable to have a kind of friends and family that I've had in my life um, who are really 2 a.m. people. You know, you can call them at 2 a.m. Um, but I did reach a point where I needed to not call them at 2 a.m. I needed to actually go in and talk with a counselor about where I was, what I wanted to be, and how I wanted to manage being a single parent, being a working parent, some of my disappointments and losses around divorce and a startup that had gone public and then been sold. Um, and I'm so glad that I did it. Yeah. A couple more questions here before we wrap up. Um, thinking back throughout your career uh, to date, what kind of counsel or advice have people most consistently come up to you for? People are asking me for advice now, and it is um, humbling and surprising. But I will tell you the three things I'm asked most about. How do you do the work parent thing? Yep. How do you put together a co-founder relationship that lasts 11 years? Because Elise Kim, our page story, Deja Dan, and I worked together for more than a decade, which is almost unheard of. And then thirdly, how do I stay on top of and focused on um, the trends in my area of specialty, which is digital and social media, um, because it is a scenario where the, the only thing evolving faster than the technology is That's the right. user, right? Um, and so there are, are three basic things I, I talk about. Um, number one, I in the whole work-life balance thing as a parent, I actually don't believe in, in having it all. I believe in pursuing it all in its own time, right? So for the past 11 years, I only did work in parenting. Many friendships, many pastimes, many pursuits fell by the wayside. And now I have the privilege to make different choices. I'll be actually able to pick up my crayons and start right. coloring again, right? Um, and I strongly urge people to be very clear with themselves about the amount of time that they want to spend with kids because that's one of the reasons I did not pursue any international opportunities. Um, now that my kids are 15, 19, and 27, that might change. Um, but I was very, very domestically U.S.-focused. Secondly, with regard to co-founders and how to work well with co-founders, I have to give Elisa Camelot Page, Jory Desjardins, and me an enormous amount of credit for being able to be on the same page about how our work ethics came together. We all have an incredibly strong work ethic. We all have complete integrity with regard to money, um, and we all fight fair. So this was a group of colleagues who over the past 11 years as co-founders and leaders of BlogHer, we were able to figure out ways to work together that allowed us to continue to agree to disagree when we needed to. And I took very seriously my role 
as CEO in creating the best possible opportunities for them as president of Strategic Alliances for Jory and as COO for Elisa. So they had as much work and as many opportunities as they wanted. Um, and so being able to share the ball while managing the ball was critical to my performance. And the third thing I would say, you know, you can't learn about an industry or follow an industry unless you do your reporting, yep. right? That's the old journalist in me. I spend an enormous amount of time listening. That's my job. I am a professional listener. Um, I think anyone who these days says that they are a true expert in something, I really kind of have to question that because if they don't position themselves as a student, I don't know how they're going to avoid obsolescence. Right. Last question here. Knowing what you know today, uh, how would you advise that younger self of yours who was struggling early on? Oh, when I couldn't figure out what I liked and couldn't decide what my purpose exactly. was and couldn't even detail a passion. Right. I just had a bunch of interests. Um, I would counsel my younger self and, and all the younger selves um, who might be listening to give yourself permission to try things. If you go in with permission to try something and give yourself an estimate of what success would look like for you, like this unpaid internship will be a success if they offer me a job at the end or they give me a letter of recommendation at the end, or if they recommend me to someone else as a hire at the end. That seems reasonable, Yep. right? Um, but I think that at the same time that you're giving yourself permission to try things, there's one thing that everyone owes themselves, particularly youth. No toxic people. Yes. We've all worked for that boss. We've all worked with that colleague who yep. is a bully. And, of course, I came up through newsrooms. So creative license may, may create a broader spectrum of behavior, okay, than the average office. But the bottom line is that none of us should be working with or living with uh, toxic people. So if there's someone in your life who's bullying yep. you, whether it's a colleague or a manager or a friend or a partner, the most important thing you can do is say, I will not be treated in this manner, and that's not yep. negotiable. Love that. Fantastic closing piece of advice. Lisa Stone, thank you very much. This was a fascinating, uh, eye-opening conversation. Thank you, Kerr. And thank you for this podcast. I love the work that you're doing. I think it's so valuable. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gert Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating and especially your review of the show on iTunes would also be hugely helpful and very much appreciated. If you think you or someone you know would be a great guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.